Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, our head pastor, Dr. Rhett Payne, studies the book of Romans. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of his word. Let's begin. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans as we continue in our study in the book of Romans. And also take your outlines. I hope that you'll stay with me in both the Bible and the outline today as it... uh, will be very helpful. This is the book of Romans, part 3. Today we're talking about the wrath of God. And I'll start reading at verse 18 in Romans 1. My sources include R.C. Sproul's The Righteous Shall Live by Faith, his study of Romans, Kent Hughes' study in Romans, John Stott's The Message of Romans from The Bible Speaks Today, Stuart Alliot, The Gospel As It Really Is from the Wellwind series, Um, Tim Keller's Romans for You, and a message by Jeff Chang, The World is in Trouble. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word from Romans 1, starting at verse 18. This is the Word of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, but because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned the natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word. And Lord, this is a hard word, so I pray for your grace as we receive it, that you would be, O Holy Spirit, our teacher today. In Jesus' name I pray it. 
Amen. Please be seated. G.K. Chesterton, the famous philosopher and theologian, was once asked about, what do you think of civilization? And you see his sense of humor in his answer. He said, I think it's a great idea. Why doesn't someone start one? Later, he he saw a series of articles about what's wrong with the world. And so he thought about that, and he sent a short letter to the editor. And he said, Dear Sir, concerning your editorial, what's wrong with the world, I am. Truly yours, G.K. Chesterton. I think he's hit on something that we need to recognize and embrace. I mean, do you get that? That you and I are what's wrong with the world. Most people don't get that. Most people blame someone else for the problems they have. And truly, there are people to blame. But is there any acceptance of my part in this? So much to say today. Four lessons, so let's look at them as we begin. The first lesson being this. God's wrath is revealed. God's wrath is revealed. Look with me at the first verse we read. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, if you've been with me the last two weeks, then you have to notice that there's an abrupt change in what Paul has been saying. His tone has changed at verse 18. The last time uh, we looked at his introduction to the revelation of the righteousness of God, this time he tells us about another revelation, the wrath of God. So that the wrath of God is a parallel to the righteousness and the holiness of God. The Greek word that Paul uses for wrath is the word orgai. Which if you think about it, you might figure out that there's an English word that sounds a lot like it from orgai. We get that word called orgy. So whenever we think of the word orgy, it's usually in connection with wild, unbridled, Drunken sexual behavior. Yet what God is trying to point out through the use of this word is that he is not just irritated or annoyed with our behavior. No, God's anger is one of passion, which elevates his anger to rage and fury. And when you think about it, wouldn't you agree that it's entirely appropriate for a holy and righteous God to be moved to anger about righteousness? Unrighteousness, to be moved to anger about wickedness, to be moved to anger about ungodliness. So one commentator concludes that God is angry at two things. He's angry at us for being irreverent, for not recognizing what a holy God he is that we sang about this morning. Secondly, that he's angry at us for being immoral. That we're not doing the things that honor him and please him with our bodies and with our lives. So to this point, as we've been discussing the gospel of God, the gospel means what? Good news. And we're going to come to the good news. But today and even next week, we're going to look at some bad news. And in order to really understand and appreciate the good news of the gospel, you have to understand and respond to the bad news Which is, we all stand guilty before God. Every single one of us. We're in the same boat. 
We're all sinners. We've all done things that are displeasing in the sight of God. And so as a result, we have a problem. And the beautiful message of the gospel is found in John chapter 3. And a lot of you know verse 16, but do you know verses 17 and 18? Look at John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. And that word condemned means judged. So whoever believes and trusts in Jesus is not going to be judged. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So as a result, in the gospel we learn that men and women may get right with God in in spite of the fact that we are not righteous. We talked about this last week and the week before. Apart from what Jesus Christ did on this cross, we are without hope. We have no way of getting out of our predicament. So, as a result, in the gospel we learn there is a way that God has made to get right with Him. And that is through His Son. We also learn in the gospel that our sin, which has a stronghold on us, might be pardoned. Which is just incredible to know that we might get a complete pardon and release from our sins and the judgment that goes with our sins. Which means the wrath of God can be turned away. How? We'll get to that in a little bit. So the first lesson, God's wrath is revealed. That God is an angry God in the sense that He is angry at sin and wickedness and godlessness. Second lesson, mankind suppresses the truth. I didn't finish the the verse when we looked at verse 18. So once again, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You know, I'm going to say this, and maybe you don't agree, but everyone knows that God exists. Everyone knows that God exists, even the ones who say that He doesn't exist. Every human being has an innate knowledge of God written on their heart. Written there by God Himself. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 11 says, God has set eternity in the heart of mankind. So God has put within us this knowledge that He is real. So no one can say that they're ignorant of the existence of God. Verse 20 of the text tells us that it can be clearly seen that there is an unseen God. Verse 28 says that everyone possesses this knowledge that God exists. Not only is that the case, but Scripture makes it clear that the truth is written into our conscience that ultimately God will bring all evil into Judgment, And that's back in verse 20 again. So even though this is true, take a look at what all mankind does. Paul says all mankind suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's verse 18. And the Greek word here means they hold it down. So the first thing is they restrain it. They restrain it. They try to ignore it. They try to bury it. They try to act like it's not there. 
You ask anyone that's been on death row if they can forget about what got them there. And they will tell you no. They think about it every single day. But a lot of people who aren't in prison are in a different kind of prison because they restrain, they push down, they push out of their consciousness that there is a holy God who puts demands on us. So the second part is to suppressing the truth is to basically reject this truth. You push it down, you push it out of the way, and then you just reject it. You say it's not true. Mankind refuses to even acknowledge it. So look at verse 21. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. A tip about the way people think. Here's a quote from Edwin Colon. He says, never study the philosophy of a person without studying the biography of a person. I really like that quote. Never study the philosophy of a person without studying the biography of a person. For example, who was the first famous atheist in this country? Her name was Madeline Murray O'Hare. The late Madeline Murray O'Hare. Why did she become such a strong opponent of atheism? I mean, what, what caused it in her? Why was she so angry at God? Her oldest son, William J. Murray, knows the answer. Now, if you remember, and maybe you've studied this if you don't remember, but in 1963, Madeline Murray O'Hare brought a lawsuit before the Supreme Court... She fought to have what taken out of the schools? Prayer. And she won. She used her son, William J. Murray. He was the plaintiff in that case. He was the one that so-called was the complainer about having to go to school where prayer was being forced upon them and mandated. Well, William J. Murray, years later, became a Christian. And wrote a book called My Life Without God. Pretty ironic, isn't it? That William J. Murray would be one who shared the gospel with people, and still is, all of his years. And he really had no relationship with his mother anymore. She despised him for this. Well, here's the answer to the question of why did she do this? William Murray believes her atheism stemmed from her bitterness toward men. Especially her lover, whose last name Murray she took after he fathered her child but refused to marry her. Here's what William Murray says about his mother. Mother came to hate the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope for preventing her marriage to a man of considerable wealth. My father told her point blank that it was his devotion to the church that would not permit him to divorce his wife. He added, my mother was mad at men and she was mad at God who is male. Rather than confront her conscience, she determined to deny God's existence and refused to accept any moral constraints. She had to destroy all references to God because if there were a deity, then he could make demands on her life. In other words, there's always a story. There's always a story behind someone's philosophy. So suppressing the truth begins with restraining it. We push it down. Then we go to rejecting the truth. And then the final step is that all mankind replaces the truth about God. 
replaces the truth about God. Verse 22 in the text says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. There's a natural progression here. First you suppress it or restrain it. Then you reject it. Finally you replace it. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. I mean, it's a bleak picture, isn't it? Uh, He says, Paul says, the opposite of evolution is taking place in the world. Mankind is not getting better. Mankind is getting worse. So, in fact, the second law of thermodynamics states that everything in our universe is in a state of gradual uh, entropy that is slowly disintegrating. And when God put man in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. Since then, it's been all downhill. So the the picture we have here of our world does not look good. There's still hope, but we're not there yet. So the first lesson, God's wrath is revealed. Secondly, mankind suppresses the truth. And then thirdly, God abandons mankind to their sin. And this is where we come to verse 24. Look in your text at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And then skipping to verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Now, we've studied this topic already this year. But whenever we see something in Scripture, it needs to be addressed. And so I must say, this is an extremely sensitive topic in our culture today. With only a few minutes to speak to it, it would be easy to misunderstand my heart, to misunderstand where I'm coming from. So let me try to sum up what we've just read. First, homosexuality is against God's natural design. It involves unnatural sexual relations, according to the text. And R.C. Sproul put it well when he wrote these words. He writes, it would be so much easier for all concerned to just ignore the problem and say to people and to the world and to the homosexual, look, it's okay, it's all right, you're just left-handed, it's fine. For me to do that, though, is to commit perjury to the Word of God. So, let God be true and everyone a liar. I believe this word. It's a hard word for many people to receive. And so let's think about this for a moment and try to think through it. Verse 27 says this. The men also abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Due penalty. So first of all, he addresses sex outside of marriage in verse 24. And then second, he specifically addresses homosexual sex. So, for example, when someone says, God made me this way, the fact is, that is not true. Yes, there is a sense in which such an orientation might reside deep inside your being, but that is the result of the corruption of our bodies Because of sin. Second, 
Idolatry is really the problem of our lives, not homosexuality or any other sin. The deepest problem of our lives is we have exchanged God for idols. We've tried to replace God with something that will give us meaning. I mean, look at verse 29. It mentions not just homosexuality, but every kind of wickedness, every kind of evil. It mentions greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So it covers a lot of ground, and we'll look at a little bit more of that in the last point. But throughout Scripture... And I've tried to talk to people about this before. It's very difficult for people sometimes to receive uh, truth from Scripture. But Scripture is very, very clear about the sacredness of sexual relationships. And God says in His Word that man and woman are to be in a covenant of sexual union. And it's meant to be in marriage. And it's meant to be a picture of man's relationship to God. Marriage between a man and a woman is the only place where our sexuality is to be discovered and to be explored. Which is why marriage is sometimes called in scripture a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a picture of the two becoming one flesh. So that in our idolatry, we have turned away from God to ourselves. So rather than our sexuality being a picture of our relationship with God, it will be a picture of our, our, our idolatry as male and female turn to images of themselves for sexual union, namely their own sex. So what do we see in the sexual revolution of our day? We see the judgment of God. And why do I say that? Because according to our text, we have exchanged the glory of God for images of ourselves, leaving the picture of ourselves as one that is completely distorted, since we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Ten years ago, Beckett Cook was a gay man in Hollywood. He had achieved great success as a set designer In the fashion industry, he worked with stars, he worked with supermodels, from Natalie Portman to Claudia Schiffer, traveling the world to design design photo shoots for the likes of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. He attended award shows and parties at the homes of Paris Hilton and Prince. He spent summer swimming in Drew Barrymore's swimming pool. And then ten years later, Beckett Cook has moved on from that life. And he says he doesn't miss it. So what changed? Beckett Cook met Jesus. He says it all began six months before his conversion. He was at a fashion party in Paris, in Paris, and he said, I just felt empty. Felt completely empty. He said, quote, I had done everything in Hollywood. I had met everyone. I had traveled everywhere. Yet I was overwhelmed, he says, with emptiness at this party. He said it was one of the most intense, is this all there is, moments in his entire life. So he says, six months after that, in September of 2009, while drinking coffee with a friend at Intelligentsia in L.A., Silver Lake neighborhood, Cook started chatting with a group of young people who were sitting at a nearby table. He said, for the first time in my life, I saw kids sitting at a table with open Bibles, having a Bible study. He said, I had never seen that before. 
He says they were from a church called Reality LA. And he asked them, after they chatted for a little bit, he said to them, what does your church believe about homosexuality? And the kids said to him, we believe it's a sin. He said he appreciated their honesty. He appreciated the fact that they didn't beat around the bush. He also said the reason he was able to accept their answer is because of that party he went to in Paris six months before. He said, I had an emptiness inside of me. And he said, I was ready for an answer. And so the group invited Beckett Cook to visit their church. And in his book, A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption, Cook describes how his life was radically changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ. He went to that church that day and he said, as the pastor was talking, the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin. And he said, I started crying. He said, then I was bawling. He said, I just felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he said, I sat there in that church thinking, this is real. This is really real. He said, I grew up in Catholic schools. I didn't know it was real. He said, God is real. And here's what he he writes. He says, when I was gay, I felt shame. Instinctively, I knew it was wrong. But though I felt shame over the years, you harden your heart to it. He said, I think the driving force behind these choices, like the rainbow flag and pride parades, the word pride, he says, even is to convince yourself that there's nothing wrong with it, nothing to be ashamed of. He says, you have to constantly tell yourself that and let the culture tell you that because there is shame attached to it. Like I said, Beckett grew up in. In Catholic schools, Jesuit school in Dallas, Texas. So he says deep down, he said, I I knew it was wrong. He talks about how over the last 20 years, there's been such a huge push to be to make being gay sacred. He says it's gone from sin to sacrament. How? He says media, social media, movies, television, Netflix. He said all of those areas have been pushing toward making being gay sacred. He says, you know, you need to think about how you respond to family members, friends, relatives who are gay. And he says this about the way he was treated. He said, I think the key is to love your friend, your relative unconditionally, no matter what, and to pray for them. He said, that's what my sister-in-law did for me. She was an evangelical Christian, and I knew, I knew that I knew what her beliefs were on sexuality, that she held the orthodox view, but I never felt an ounce of judgment from her over the years. She just loved me and prayed for me for 20 long years, and it worked. So I would encourage you to read his book, Beckett Cook, A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. And if you're of the female variety, I would recommend the book Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry. And it will help you, I'm sure. So the first lesson, God's wrath is revealed. Secondly, mankind suppresses the truth. Third lesson, God abandons mankind to their sin. And the fourth and final lesson, mankind faces the ultimate dimension of depravity. 
verse 28 says, Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. A depraved mind. And so when you're lost, you act out in so many different ways. When you are without Christ, there's all these different idols. I mean, there's, there's greed, which would lead to economic sin. There's envy, there's murder, there's strife, there's deceit, there's malice, and that's social sin. There's disobeying parents, which is family sin. There's gossiping, which is relational sin. And there's God-hating, which is inventing ways to do evil, which is really the picture of total depravity. I mean, it sounds like a miserable life, doesn't it? And yet we engage in all these different kinds of things, searching for meaning in life. And then it says in verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Which sounds like misery loves company. And as our society has moved downward, no one seems to be able to put a limit on how far down we go. So why would God give a civilization over to this kind of thing? Well, he gives mankind up so that in their despair, they might reach the point like Beckett Cook, where they hit bottom. Where they ask that question, is this all there is? Isaiah the prophet predicted, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light. A light has dawned. And in the brokenness of the world, we see God's justice But in the cross, we see God's mercy. And so, don't think that there's only one side to the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a part of God's nature. His justice. His scripture says he must punish the guilty. But the other side of God's character is his mercy. And he is a merciful God. And so all the catalog of sins Paul lists for us, he later repeats in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. And he concludes in verse 3 of Ephesians 2 by saying, We were by nature objects of wrath. But thankfully, he doesn't stop there. Which is our verse of the week is where we are in Ephesians 2. Read with me verses 4 through 8, which is really the good news. You've heard the bad news this morning, but there's good news for you if you're broken. There's good news for you if you've tried everything in the world and it doesn't seem to satisfy. The mercy and grace of our God is there for you. And so please read with me Ephesians 2, 4 through 8 out loud. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that you're a God who doesn't push us away. Your word says, him who comes to me, I will never turn away. So, Father, I pray for anyone in this place that's been chasing idols, which has left them empty in their deadness to sin, in their lifestyle, whatever they're doing that's not bringing any joy, 
any lasting joy, would you let them know that you are standing with open arms saying, come home. Come home to me, the living God. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're so real. Thank you that it's not just make-believe, it's not a myth, it's not just a history book, but your word is alive and active, and your word brings life. And just like you brought life to Beckett Cook, and how you're using him today in this world, I pray that for someone in this place, Lord. I pray that for someone this, in this place who has a family member or a friend that they are broken-hearted over, would you give us grace to love those Nobody else seems to care for that people have given up on. And would you give us the grace to love them unconditionally and to demonstrate to them the love of Christ? We thank you for your love that found us, Lord. One of these categories was us. So I pray that you will help us to see your love in the cross of Jesus Christ. Praise you, Jesus, for loving us that much. Praise you, Jesus, for giving us grace that is greater than our sin. And so we come to you because we have nowhere else to turn. You are our only hope, and we praise you for the light of Christ that shines in our darkness. And I ask that you shine today in our hearts, Lord, with the love of God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.